Hey, good morning, you guys. It's super good to see you all. Um, so before I forget, like I forgot last week, elementary kids, you guys are dismissed. And uh, youth group, so middle schoolers and high schoolers, you guys are dismissed as well. Pastor Chris is rescuing you, unless you want to stay in here. And you're welcome. Look at all of them run out the door, right, as fast as they can possibly get out the door. Just an update for you guys. The Prue family made it safely to Tennessee after their big, long drive. So the gospel has arrived to Tennessee. <laughs> so there's hope for for that state. And uh, if the Prues are watching, we still love you. We don't forgive you for moving, but we, but we do love you and uh, pray that the Lord blesses you out there. So um, lots of great stuff to get to today. Um, so hopefully you guys will hang out with us next week. Uh, so next week is the week that we're all headed out to, uh, to Panera after church uh, just to grab lunch together. And there's some other things around there if you're not a Panera fan. And I think you can get something and maybe bring it onto their patio. But that's the idea is just for us to get together as a church family, kind of out in the community and just enjoy one another. And, uh, and there's no cleanup. So that's the really good news about all that. And then as Susie said, just that night, so next Sunday night, we hope you'll come back from, uh, from our time together in the afternoon just for a neat time of worship uh, in the evening. And it's a wonderful opportunity to invite somebody out to come and just have a night of, uh, of worship. Uh, and also, I hope that you guys are being as ministered to by your summer reading as I am. I'm reading some books that I've read before, some of them are brand new to me, but some of the books on that list are, uh, are really having an impact on me personally. If, if you're not yet chosen a book, or if you're not reading along with us, it's not too late. Just look in the e-bulletin and there's the whole list of the different books um, I think we're all out of the copies that we had, but you can get them all through Amazon or some of those other links. Uh, if you don't get the e-bulletin, of course you should be getting it, so you can sign up for that. Uh, back at the info table, ladies, you can sign up when you sign up for the one-day ladies getaway. So great text in store for us today, and let's just pray and uh, just ask the Lord now to continue just to bless our time uh, as we turn uh, to his word this morning. So. Father, we thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for this local church family that you've provided for us, Lord. And we thank you for this time that you've appointed, Lord, that we can come together each week, Lord, and, and worship you freely, Lord, and to, to minister to you through our worship, Lord, and to be ministered to by you, Lord, through your word. And so we pray, Lord. Uh, as we pray each and every time we open the scriptures, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher. Lord, we pray first and foremost that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here this morning, Lord, that it would be your words that are spoken to our hearts. And so we pray for that today, Lord, and we ask your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be back in the book of Colossians this week. If you don't have a Bible uh, of course, it's always great to have one with you, and if you didn't bring one, just raise your hands, and we've got some copies we can get uh, to you. You're welcome, of course, to use a Bible on your phone or whatever, as long as you're not checking the sports scores. Well, you can check whatever you want to check while we do it. So, um, Anyway, Colossians chapter 1, and we made a great start, I think, to what is this powerful, powerful book, I think one of the most powerful books of all of the Apostle Paul's letters to the churches in the New Testament. And remember we said last week he writes this little letter to this little church in this little town that had a very big problem. Remember it was the, the Colossian heresy. And it was this heresy that was threatening to really compromise the faith of these brand new believers at Colossae by mixing in a bunch of different philosophies, right? Mixing in philosophies from mysticism and from legalism and also from early forms of first century Gnosticism. And then taking all of those things and trying to blend them all together with the truths they had already been taught about Jesus and then just sort of add them in as an addition to Jesus, right? And we talked about, remember, they promised that there was this sort of a secret knowledge that they could learn and it was kind of a more enlightened approach 
to their faith in Jesus. And so Paul hears about this from his friend Epaphras, who very likely had planted and probably pastored the church there. Epaphras had traveled to see Paul, who was waiting under house arrest, you remember, in Rome for his trial before the emperor. And so Epaphras reports this to Paul, and Paul pens this powerful letter, and he sends it back there with Epaphras. And he's trying to bring these Colossian believers back to the simplicity of the gospel and back to the supremacy of Jesus. And we saw last time Paul started out with this beautiful thanksgiving for what the gospel had done in the church. He said, we'd heard about your faith and about your love and about your hope. And then we finished up in this wonderful prayer that the apostle Paul prayed for what the gospel would continue to do through the church. He prayed for wisdom and spiritual understanding from the Lord, that we might walk worthy of the Lord, that we might be strengthened with all might by the Lord. And we talked about the fact that all of this would be the very same things that are going to enable us as believers today and as the church today, the church with a capital C, right? These would be the things which will equip and enable us really to speak in to this crisis that we see in the culture all around us. Just to really speak into the circumstances of our world, these gospel words that give life and that bring light into the darkness. And we left off last time, you remember, with three little verses, which we said that we'd look at more in earnest today. And as a matter of fact, we're gonna spend all of our time on just those three verses today because I think that they are absolutely foundational and bedrock verses for our faith. Because Paul is finishing up in this first section, he's greeted the church and he's prayed for the church and he does it all. Look what it says in verse 12 of Colossians chapter one. He does it all, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So having just prayed this beautiful prayer, Paul now kind of pivots back to this wonderful moment of spirit-inspired thanksgiving, and it's all about all that God had done for them. And that, in a word, that's our entire focus for the morning, is the things that God has done for each one of us. And, and I think that this is well worth our time, because most of the time, I think that when people think about the Christian faith, when they think about what it means to be a Christian, that, that quite often, maybe even most often, people think of the things that you do, or people start to think of the things that you have to stop doing in order to become or once you start to become a Christian. And so in the minds of so many people, the emphasis just almost always seems to be on you and on your performance, that you have to start doing this thing or you have to stop doing that thing. But the fact is that that is not at all what Christianity is first and foremost at all about because what Christianity is first and foremost all about is what God has done. And many of you are familiar with a man named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was one of the, the sort of a, a wonderful preacher from the kind of the mid 20th century to the late 20th century, of course, in England. He put it so very well, he put it like this. He said, the idea is as current today as it ever has been that the message of Christianity is to call us to do something to put ourselves right, or to put the world right, to stop this, to stop that. But the very first principle of Christianity denies that completely. It is the exact opposite. Christianity is first and foremost a proclamation of what God has done. That's what Christianity is. First and foremost, it's a proclamation of what God has already done 
on our behalf. And this is so important for us to understand. And frankly, it's something that is missed by most of, or at least by much of, the church today. And so very often, preachers are getting this all wrong. Right? And so what happens is that the message that's coming from the pulpit, it comes always down to things that you should do or things you shouldn't do or how you should act or how you shouldn't act. And the focus ends up always to be on our behavior. And behavior absolutely has a place in our Christian lives, but it's not the first place because our behavior is always the result of something else. And the Bible itself, and Paul in particular, lays out the scriptures in such a way that he always emphasizes initially what God has done for us. Of course, you think about his letter to the Romans, which is considered by many to be the most thorough doctrinal presentation of the Christian faith. And in the book of Romans, the first 11 of the 16 chapters of that book 11 full chapters are dedicated entirely to what God alone has done, right? The first eight chapters present kind of what God has done for us in Christ, and then chapters 9 through 11 talk all about what God has done and will do in his people Israel. It talks about the future, and it's not until you get to chapter 12 that you actually get to this point of personal application, Right? We all know the verse, that's where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He says, therefore, right, because of chapters 1 through 11, now you can do chapters 12 through 16. He does appeal to them you know, for their behavior, but he's doing it based on everything else that he's already said to them. He's already told them about the grace of God and the love of God and how Christ died for us and how God demonstrated his love for us. He talked about how we've been filled with the Spirit and how there's no condemnation now. And now all those wonderful things, then he gets to the point where he says, now because all of this is the case, now you can do this. And of course, we find the very same thing in a shorter degree in his letter to the Ephesians, right? Again, for the first three chapters of this six-chapter book, almost three and a half chapters, it's just an exposition of the goodness of God towards us as sinners. And then after that, then and only then, he calls us to live in a certain way. In chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling Right? And then in verse 17, he says, This I say, therefore, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles. And I know that I'm belaboring the point, right? but there is a point to my point. Right? And that's that the scriptures are very intentionally laid out this way by the Holy Spirit because our relationship with the Lord is laid out in that very same way that our behavior as Christians was always only meant to be a response to what God has already done. God is always the initiator and we are the responder. And it's important to keep this perspective so we don't kind of get our proverbial horse before our proverbial cart. Because the fact is, and some of us have tried and tried, but we can't live this Christian life any other way than simply to live in light of what the Lord has already done. And then to simply live in a, in a way that's a heartfelt response to that. And so here in this letter to these believers who were in danger of drifting away, and they were actually being actively pulled away from these things, Paul is pulling them back with these three verses, and he gives them, in these verses, he gives them five specific things that the Lord has done for them. Now, of course, it isn't an exhaustive list. Paul and the other authors spend plenty of time in the other books giving us insight and, into, and understanding into all that God has done. But this five things is a pretty powerful list, and it's a pretty powerful five things. The first of those things, look back again with me at verse 12, he says that the Father has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. 
So the very first thing that God has done for us, he's qualified us. Now we've probably all had some experience in life where we've been told that we're not qualified for some particular thing. Maybe we didn't have enough training, we didn't have the right credentials, the certifications or the experience. But we've also maybe had a situation where we've been disqualified for something. And that's an entirely different thing. When we're disqualified, it's because there's something about us that removes us out of the running. Right? We are unfit. We are prohibited from participating or from partaking. And that's the state that we were all in by nature when it comes to this inheritance that God has, these riches that he wants to give to us as his children. We think about our, our human condition, our state of sin that would keep us from all of that. And the great news of the gospel message is that God stepped in and basically has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He qualified us and he did it through that righteousness of Jesus Christ being imputed, if you will, to our account. Now, imputed is one of those fancy theological words. It's simply an accounting term. It means credited. So the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited to our unrighteous account, right? Because stamped right there across our paperwork was the word disqualified. And yet the wonder of the gospel is that God takes that perfect righteousness. He takes the perfect rightness of Jesus. He places that on our account. And he stamps his stamp of righteousness across that red stamp of our sin. And it says, paid in full. And that's all imputed righteousness means. It's a righteousness that's given to us that's not intrinsic to us, but it had to come from outside of us. And that's the idea in Romans 8 where Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because outside of Christ, we were disqualified. We were condemned. But now that we're in Christ, right, we've placed our faith in Christ and we are qualified. And Paul explains that we're heirs of God now and we're joint heirs with Christ. Together here, he says, we're heirs with the saints in the light. In the simplest way we can think of it, God has made us fit for heaven. Think about that. Did you think for one instant when you came to know the Lord that you were fit for heaven? And yet that's what God's done for us. He's made us fit. So the next time you start to doubt or to question whether you're good enough or whether you're worthy enough to be part of God's family or to truly be one of his heirs and to inherit heaven at the end of your life and even to start enjoying that reality now here on earth in this life, whenever you start to have doubts about that, because you've started to look at your own failures or you know, all of those things, this truth cancels all of that out. It cancels out all of that doubt. It cancels out all of that lies. And remember that when God looks at your account, he sees the word qualified, stamped in big letters right across your account and even across my account. Because that's the work that his son Jesus did for us. So number one, he's qualified us. Secondly, look what Paul tells us at the beginning of verse 13. He says that he has delivered us. Well, delivered us from what? Well, from the power of darkness. The Bible teaches that there are dark, powerful forces that currently rule the world and that control the lives of people who are outside of Jesus. The biblical teaching is that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, 1 John chapter 5. So we shouldn't really be surprised at all when we see 
the way that our world is exploding. We shouldn't be surprised at all when we see all the things that we see happening around us, when we see the hatred and the violence and the prejudice. We see all these different kinds of things. We shouldn't be surprised because these are simply manifestations of a world that's really caught in the grip of these powers of darkness. And that's where we all were at one time, each one of us. We were in that very place. To the Ephesians in chapter 2, Paul says, this is an ugly passage, ready? Hold on to your seats. He says, we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Amen? But the good news of the gospel, this was our previous condition, but because of the gospel of Jesus and through the work of Jesus, he has delivered us from the powers of darkness. So we're no longer in this captivity to the enemy. You know, before we were Christians, we didn't even know that this was the case. We didn't know how to explain the state that we're in. We know now that before we each became a Christian, we were bound in sin. We were unable to free ourselves from that place. And this is, again, precisely what the Bible teaches. Because writing to Timothy, Paul talks about those who are you know, in the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So the devil takes people captive. And that's our natural condition because of our sin. We're in this bondage to sin. We're under the control of sin. And not only does the Bible say we're bound in sin, but we're blinded by sin. Right? We're blinded by the enemy to our true condition. Paul talks about this before we came to Jesus. He talks about those whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So again, this is part of the work of the enemy. He blinds us to the truth. He keeps us in this bondage and in this captivity so that we have no means ourselves of liberating ourselves from this but Jesus right and I think back before I was a Christian and now looking back with an understanding but I can remember we can all probably remember we all can remember doing things that were wrong and things that we even knew were destructive and things that we knew were harmful to ourselves and to the people around us, but we didn't really know how to stop doing those things. And even those times when we would try to stop doing those things, we would find that we couldn't stop doing those things. And this is still the story for so many people today who are still in bondage to drugs or to alcohol or to sex or to hate or to anger or to whatever it is. All of those different things that plague us. And they know, you know, sometimes they have these moments where they realize, you know, I feel like I'm in captivity to this. I need to get out of this. But they don't have the power to get out or to be free of it. But the answer is what Paul tells us here. They need to be delivered from that power of darkness. And the only one who possesses the power to do that for a person is the Lord. He's the deliverer. He's the one who comes in and who breaks those chains and who sets the captives free from darkness. And then, right, but wait, there's more, right? Then, look at the end of that same verse. Not only does he deliver us from the darkness... But verse 13 says, he's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So this is this third incredible thing in our list of five things, right? Because of the work of Jesus, we've been moved from one dark kingdom into an entirely new and wonderful kingdom, conveyed from one kingdom 
into the other. Another way to translate that word conveyed is just transferred, right? Or even translated in some of your uh, translations. And it's a wonderful word in the original language. It's an interesting word that was used to describe the deportation of a population from one country into another country, right? Where in those times when one empire would conquer another empire, the custom was to take the entire population of the conquered empire and to transfer it completely onto then the conqueror's land. And so it's in this sense with that picture that Paul says we've been conveyed into God's kingdom. So everything that we have, everything that we are now belongs to him. Historically, it's interesting. History tells us that 400 years before this letter was written, the Greek king Antichus the Great, he transported at least 2,000 Jews from captivity in Babylon back to the city of Colossae itself. So this would have been a, a very much a part of their history locally. It would have been something they could have identified with personally, right? They knew that their ancestors had been taken out of that bondage and back into freedom. In a sense, the whole experience of the children of Israel in the Old Testament is an illustration of this same spiritual experience. We've been studying it in the book of Joshua, right? God delivered his precious people from that bondage they were in down in Egypt, and he moved them then into the promised land of their inheritance, right? God brings us out that he might bring us in. And Jesus didn't release us from the bondage we were in to sin and to Satan just to have us then wander around aimlessly. He moved us into this wonderful kingdom of light. And this is what the gospel does. Jesus had called Paul specifically, he tells us in Acts 26, called him to the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what the gospel does, right? It turns us from darkness to light. It transfers us out of this kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. Now, there's an interesting reality here that I think we need to be clear about. And that's that the kingdom of God is both already here and yet not fully here. So the kingdom of God is a present reality right now today for anyone who has put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been transferred into that kingdom and out of that kingdom of darkness. But God's kingdom on earth is not here yet in its fullest sense. It will come one day in its fullness during the millennium, right? During that period where the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, it says, as the waters covers the, cover the sea. So that's the promise of the prophets. We ourselves saw it as we studied through the book of Revelation, that time when Jesus Christ will rule and reign physically on earth from Jerusalem, where he'll sit there on the throne of David and he'll rule, it says, over the house of Jacob and he'll do it forever and ever. So these are the promises and that is the future and it will be fully and finally realized at some point which is to come. But today, even at this point, that kingdom, the Bible says, is already among us. It's already among all of us who have put our faith in Christ and we are a part of that kingdom even now here on the earth. And so what that means, here's where it gets tricky, doesn't it? Is that today we are really living in two different kingdoms, aren't we? We're still very much living in the kingdom of this world that's under the control of Satan, but we are now citizens of the kingdom of God. Right? We're in the world, but we're not any longer of the world because we are of that different kingdom, another kingdom, the kingdom of light and a kingdom of life 
and a kingdom of love. And what we need to do as God's people is to simply remember that we are no longer part of that dark kingdom. It has no more claims on our lives because we've been transferred into the kingdom of the son of his love. And this is a kingdom, right? This kingdom that we now live and that we now operate in, this kingdom has a whole different kind of an atmosphere. It has a whole different kind of a lifestyle, a completely different way of thinking and of doing and of treating one another and of relating to each other. And it is the church today, in a very real sense, that we are to be the visible presence of that beautiful kingdom in the world. Remember, that was the whole point of Paul's prayer for the church in our text last time. Remember talking about how important it is that we just recognize that we are the current representatives of Jesus on this earth and that we are perfectly positioned now for such a time as this, at this moment in our culture to speak his heart into the crisis that we see all around us. And it's when we use this picture that Paul's talking about here in terms of these two different kingdoms, we really start to see the power because think of it like this. There are these two different kingdoms and the vast majority of people are still stuck where? In the kingdom of darkness. But here's this beautiful manifestation of the kingdom of Christ all spread throughout the world in all of these local church bodies, right? These Christians who are gathering together. And what people ought to be able to do is to look at us and to see the stark contrast between the two kingdoms, right? As they either come into our midst or they peek inside the room or they kind of, you know, peer at us from across the way, they ought to be able to look and to see, you know what? That's a whole different thing going on over there. It should be so very beautiful to them and so attractive to them that they want to know how they can transfer in. How can they transfer out of that kingdom that they're in and transfer into this kingdom where they see purity and they see beauty and they see revelation and understanding and they see energy and vitality, right? This is the kingdom of Christ and it's a kingdom of life. It's not a dead kingdom. And unfortunately, how many churches over the years have just started to model sort of a deadness or a dryness to the point where sometimes people look in at a church and they say, well, what in the world does that have to do with me? Right? What does that possibly have to offer me? What would I want with that? Because the perspective, what they've seen of the church is deadness and dryness. But the kingdom of Jesus is full of life. And when Jesus is dwelling in us, then we start to see that life flow out of us and it can be seen by everybody around us because it is a kingdom of love, as Paul says here, just as he is the son of love. And if there was any place at all in the world where people ought to be able to see that stark difference between the world and the church it is right here in this realm of love and what's so sad is that so many people in our world today who get caught up in all of these lifestyles that are unbiblical these other movements or these other communities so often they get drawn in because they say they felt accepted they get drawn in because they say they felt loved by that community. And so many people, for example, in the gay community, they cherish the community because it's a place where they first felt loved and they first felt accepted and they first felt cared for. And the reality, sadly, is that in many cases they were the very same people who at one time were in the churches and they didn't feel loved here. Now don't mishear me. Don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that to make them feel loved, we always have to agree 
with their lifestyle or with their choices or with their desires, but they didn't sense that there was any real love or any concern for them individually in their plight. You talk to so many and they say they didn't even feel like anyone was willing to listen to them or to be in the least bit sympathetic and just to simply try to come alongside them and to understand and to give them help. And so they just decided this is not a place I want to be. This is not a place where I'm loved. This is not a place where I'm cared about and I'm never going back to that place. And I think that we sometimes forget this is a kingdom of love, amen? And what people need from us, regardless of where they're coming from, regardless of what their background is, they ought to be able to sense that even where there cannot be an agreement on things or where there can't be an affirmation of things, we do truly love them beyond that. We love them in spite of that and we love them right where they are in the midst of their struggle. Right? We've been transferred into this kingdom. People are peering in to find out what it's all about. And we need to remember, God didn't ask any of us to clean up our act before he brought us into this kingdom, did he? He brought us in and now he is in that very long process of cleaning us up. Right? He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He qualified us for this inheritance. He delivered us from the power of darkness. He's conveyed us into this kingdom. And the fourth thing he did, look what it says there. He redeemed us from our bondage. Verse 14, Paul says, we have redemption through his blood. We're redeemed through the blood of Jesus. And the word redemption here simply means to pay a price for something. And more specifically, it means to buy something back. And the biblical story of redemption, it is the gospel message. It began all the way back in the book of Genesis, didn't it? Where God created the world and he created humanity. He created mankind to have a relationship with himself. But man betrays God and takes sides with the enemy, ends up coming under the control of and living as captives under the enemy. And what God does through Jesus is he buys us back out of that situation. He redeems us. And the specific word there in the biblical text, specifically, it's the word that was used in the purchase of a slave. More specifically, referring to the purchase of a slave in order to give them their freedom, right? To liberate them. Before we came to know the Lord, each and every one of us was standing up there on that slave block, right? We stood in the same way that slaves have stood through the ages. We stood up there on that platform to have people bid for us on the basis of what we thought they thought we could, uh, that we were worth. Right, what we might be useful for, whether it was as a laborer or as a lawyer or as a doctor. Remember, in Paul's time, not all slaves were poor people. Some slaves were actually some of the most highly educated citizens, and yet they were slaves. They had no freedom. They were completely vulnerable to whoever out there in the audience could pay money for them and bring us into whatever their particular bondage is. And that's what the devil did to each one of us. But Jesus showed up on the scene and he paid this great price to remove us from the slave market. Right? Think of it this way. The Lord Jesus put a price tag on each one of us. How highly did he value us? Well, in effect, he said, I value them so highly. He said, they are so precious to me that I am willing to pay for them with my own blood, to purchase them and to free them. And that's what God has done for us. He's redeemed us and he's done it at a high price, right? The highest price, the very life of his only begotten son. Right? Peter says that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, 
but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So his life for our life, right? His perfect life for our sinful life. That was the price. And as it resulted, look what Paul says at the end of that same verse. Verse 14, he says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. God has forgiven all of our sins. He's made a way for our sins to be forgiven. And you notice that as the Holy Spirit speaks here through the Apostle Paul, he seems to save this one for last because this is the basis on which all of the rest of God's work rests that we can be and that we have been forgiven for our sins. Sin is a serious issue that we don't like to think about and we certainly don't like to talk about, especially not in church on a Sunday morning where people might be visiting. Right? We don't want to talk about sin. But the Bible describes sin as this destructive principle. Right? It's an eroding force that is constantly at work in the creation around us and it's at work in every single person. And our individual sins are simply an outworking of that principle being at work in us. So sin is the root cause of all of the trouble and all of the problems in the world yesterday, today, tomorrow, right? All of that trouble is connected back to our issue of sin. All of the problems are rooted in sin because sin is the thing that has separated us from God. The most simple way to define sin is the act of going against God and his ways. And so it would make sense then that if we're going against something or going against someone, that we're by definition separated from them. So sin separates us from God. Speaking through Isaiah, God said this, he said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, which is sin, your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. And yet the wonderful news of the gospel, again, is that all of this has been completely remedied through what Jesus Christ has done for us. All of those sins that separated us from God, those sins that kept us from hearing his voice, those sins that kept us from experiencing his love and kept us from knowing him and having that sense of his wonderful presence and really feeling his hand of mercy over us and, and guidance for us, all of those things that prevented that have all been taken out of the way. What a wonderful thing that is for each and every one of us because everybody has this same sin problem. You've all heard Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in the Greek, that word all, what does it mean? Really, what does it mean? It means all. Some people's sins are more blatant. Some people's sins are more obvious. Some people's sins are more notorious. For other people, their sins maybe aren't as easy always to see. But the truth of the matter is that we all sin and all of our sin separates all of us from God. Because as far as God is concerned, it's not just the things we do that are wrong. It's every single thing we think that are wrong. It's all of our desires that are inherently wrong and that fall so short of what he wants for us in our lives. You think about all the way through all of the gospel accounts, you see Jesus constantly at odds with the religious leaders of the day because they thought that they were righteous and they thought that they were holy and that they were so incredibly incensed that Jesus would even insinuate that they were sinful because in their minds, outwardly at least, they had never done anything that they thought was all that bad. And that's precisely why Jesus had to explain to them and to everyone in the Sermon on the Mount, which, in which he explains what the kingdom of God is like. He says this, he says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, he says, you might think that you're pure you, just because you've never committed the act of adultery, but he's trying to show them it goes so much deeper than that. Similarly, he says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit murder. Whoever commit murders will be in danger of the judgment. He says, but I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So you think that you're nice and you think that you're forgiving and you think that you're loving and that you'd never actually hurt anybody and certainly you would never murder anybody. But you know what? If, you've, if you hate somebody in your heart, Jesus says you have already murdered them. So that's the standard. That's God's holy standard that we have all fallen so short of. And I, I think sometimes we don't appreciate our own forgiveness the way that we should. We don't extend that sense of mercy and forgiveness and love to people like we should when they've sinned simply because we have forgotten or maybe we never realized just how much we've been forgiven. We've never realized just how serious our own sin problem was. Sin is cancer. It's eating away at us from the inside and it destroys us in our souls and our minds and it causes us to think things and to do things that are destructive to us and to others, whether we intend them to be or not, that's what sin is. And our sin weighs us down, doesn't it? It burdens us because our sins are actually crimes against a holy God. And we know that and there's this burden of guilt upon each and every one of us because we know intrinsically how guilty we are. And that burden is real because we are guilty. And so before we've come to the Lord, living under that burden of guilt gets to the point where it becomes intolerable, right? And yet then comes Jesus, right? And we have forgiveness from all of that because of him. That word forgiveness, literally it means sending away. It means to cancel a debt. Jesus paid the penalty on the cross and now it never needs to be paid again. The account is settled, your account is closed and God has not only forgiven, but doesn't the psalmist tell us that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So he's not only set us free and transferred us into this new kingdom, but he has canceled every debt so that we can't be enslaved again. Satan can't find anything on you in the files. He can't dig up any dirt on us that can convict us in the eyes of God. All of that sin and all of that guilt and all of that shame has been sent away, it says here, as far as the east is from the west because of Jesus, because of what he did on the cross. We've been qualified for this inheritance. We've been delivered from the power of darkness. We've been conveyed into this kingdom. We've been redeemed back to God. We've been forgiven for our sin. Those are those five things in these three verses. And that is a considerable amount of work that God has done that he alone has invested into each and every one of our lives. And what Paul is saying here in these verses, again, in the context of these false teachers, these false philosophies that were now coming on the scene, he's saying, look at the work, look what God has done on your behalf that absolutely could not have been done by anyone else. And why in the world would you start to stray from that? Why would you entrust yourself to anyone else but the one who has so dramatically already changed your life. The one who brought you up out of the pit and has forgiven you and redeemed you and got you out of that slavery that where you were in. He said, you stick with Jesus, right? Stick with the one who got you here. Or as they say in Tennessee for the Prus, you dance with the one that brung you, right? Look back quickly at this, look at the first verse. Look at verse 12. 
Look what he writes all of this. He writes all of it under the heading of what? He says, giving thanks to the Father. So all of what he's just written was written under the heading of thanks. When we start to really understand and to truly understand and to deep down understand all that God has done for us, we can't help but just want to live in a perpetual state of this heartfelt thanksgiving. And so often as Christians, when we get vulnerable to false doctrine or to false philosophy, getting lured away into these things, or when we get vulnerable to anxiety and to fear and to doubt, it's often because we have lost our sense of thankfulness. Because thankful people are very hard people to move. So that's the message of the morning, right? Be thankful. And if you don't remember anything else that I have said this morning, just remember that. Right? Just be thankful for all that the Lord has done. And just simply soak that in and allow that to fill you up. And it's enough. And the next time that you might start to doubt or that you might start to question or that you are being threatened by worry or by anxiety about whatever circumstance that you're presently in or whatever fears you have for the future, just think back to these things that God has already done in bringing you to where you are now and be thankful. It's why we spent an entire Sunday morning on just these few verses. And maybe if you can, remember this. Remember what Paul wrote to the Romans. Right? And remember it in light of everything that we've looked at today. He wrote to the Romans in Romans 8 in verse 32. He said, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Remember, it's, it's not about what we do for God. Right? It never was. It's all about what he's done for us. It always was that. It will always only be that. And aren't we all so thankful for that? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray that the kids get back in to lead us in uh, worship, because if not, we'll be done super early. So let's pray. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. And we do thank you, Lord, for just these few verses, Lord, and these powerful truths that, uh, that we find in them. And Father, we do pray that you would help to make um, just the the, the deep realities of what we've read today, Lord. Help those to be, uh, to come alive in our hearts, Lord. Help the simplicity of the gospel to be evident to us. And Father, we do pray that it would produce within us just a sense of being thankful, Lord. So thankful for what you've done, Lord. And based on that, Lord, just confidence in what it is that we know that you want to continue to do in each of our lives. So, Lord, we, we thank you and we love you. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.